Hello, Curious Clinicians podcast fans. This is Mark Shapiro here. I'm a hospitalist and the host of Explore the Space podcast. I am grateful to Hannah, Tony, and Avi for sharing their mic with me for a moment to talk about the Morning Report initiative with Vote Health 2020. Through my years in medical school, residency, and as an attending, I could count the number of conversations I've had about voting with my fellow medical students and residents and physician colleagues on one hand. Somehow it's become normal for us to not help mobilize and energize one another around voting. This has cost us dearly. Physicians vote at a rate that is 9% less than the general public and 22% less than attorneys. This November 3rd, there is a presidential election, but remember your ballot will be filled with so much more. State elections, local elections, bond measures. You may be electing your local sheriff or deciding on a measure around carbon offsets in your county. The issues and initiatives that impact our communities and the lives of those we care for are not hearing our voice and feeling our impact. It's time we change that. The process is simple. Check your eligibility to register and get registered to vote. Then, decide if you'd like to vote absentee or mail-in. They mean the same thing. And check the deadlines for your state. If you're planning to vote in person, make a voting plan. This is critical for us in medicine. Check your work schedule, talk to your teammates, discover how you'll cover one another to ensure everyone can get to the polling place on election day. Then cast your ballot. I've chosen to vote absentee this year because I'm working on election day. Take a look at the slide in the show notes for this episode of Curious Clinicians Podcast. It's got everything you need to move through these steps in one place, and it takes just a few minutes. We want to bring this message far and wide, and the Morning Report Initiative is here to help do that. If you'd like to have me or another physician on our Vote Health 2020 team join any meeting you've got, we'll be there. Morning Report, Grand Rounds, Team Huddle, you're having a coffee with some pals, anything. Just email info at VoteHealth2020.com to schedule. We'll set up a free, less than five-minute presentation that is nonpartisan and has everything your audience needs to get activated. You can also check out www.VoteHealth2020.com. No excuses this election and going forward, my friends. Thank you so much for all that you do. Now, back to Tony, Hannah, and Avi and the Curious Clinicians podcast. All right, welcome back to the Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew. And I'm once again joined by Hannah Abrams and Avi Cooper. How are you guys doing? Good, Tony. Good to see you. Good to see you. Hannah? Uh, Always good to see you both. Fantastic. So um, today on the podcast, we're going to explore why metronidazole treats both bacterial and parasitic infections, uh, why it's only effective against anaerobic organisms, organisms, and how this relates to the the supposed desulfiram-like reaction. Um, so Avi, why don't you get us started by talking a little bit about why you decided to explore uh, metronidazole? So this has always been one of those kind of quaint paradoxes for me. You know, there aren't many drugs that treat both bacteria and parasites. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is one that comes to mind. But for some reason, it never really bothered me that it does this. And I don't know, one day I decided it was kind of just time to answer this question. And of course, I had been walking around, living my life, not caring about this question at all. And then all of a sudden, I'm like waist deep in this, you know, the history of this drug and how it works. And I just kept finding more and more interesting things about the story. And I don't know, it was just a fun rabbit hole to go down, one that I didn't kind of anticipate. 
Yeah, that sounds uh, uh, unfortunately quite familiar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. <Yeah>. Ditto. <laughs> Uh, so can you remind us both and uh, and everyone who's listening, um, like, like what's the spectrum of activity of metronidazole? Like what infections do, can we use to treat it typically? So metronidazole is bactericidal against anaerobic bacteria, whether that's gram positives or gram negatives, as well as microaerophilics like H. pylori. It's also used to treat anaerobic parasites like Entamoeba histolytica um, or Giardia. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of remarkable that it only treats anaerobic organisms. And I, I never thought about it until you brought it up. But how does it only treat anaerobic organisms? Yeah, you know, it is... It, bacteria. Yeah, exactly. And it is, it is, it's interesting, you know, it's the only antimicrobial that exclusively is active against anaerobes or microaerophilic bugs. There's really no other drug like it. And it turns out the key to its mechanism is pyruvate metabolism. In particular, the different ways that aerobes and anaerobes metabolize pyruvate. So this is going to require some step one type review. So my <sighs> sincerest apologies in advance. You don't need to apologize to the two of us. Yeah. To me. No, you're, no. Why are you doing this to me right now? I'm no, the reality fragile. is, Hannah, you're you're very excited. <laughs> so the step one <laughs> type review, yeah. So the step one type review is that aerobes use pyruvate dehydrogenase complex to convert pyruvate to acetyl CoA, which then goes into the Krebs cycle and generates ATP. That's aerobes. So, so people, so it's like organisms like us, like humans. Okay, correct. Um, and so anaerobic bacteria and parasites, they actually have a completely different mechanism for for processing pyruvate. They do still convert pyruvate to acetyl CoA, but they use an enzyme called pyruvate ferredoxine oxidoreductase. It's much easier to say its abbreviation or P4 which catalyzes a redox reaction that moves some electrons around. Hmm, yeah, I didn't know that before. <laughs> so that's fascinating, um, but it doesn't really get us any further uh, along the whole metronidazole spectrum. So can you finally tie in a little bit about metronidazole and how that relates here? So metronidazole, it actually acts as a target for P4, and it gets reduced. So this effectively, I guess it activates it is probably the right word. And after getting activated by this redox reaction, it starts accumulating electrons, forming superoxide anions, damages the DNA of the organism that it was activated in and kills that organism, which I don't know. That's I think it's really cool. Yeah. Okay. So just to make sure that I'm getting it, in anaerobic bacteria and parasites, there's a whole nother way to metabolize or kind of to do essentially what we do in terms of um, processing pyruvate. And it uses this enzyme P4 and metronidazole attacks or sort of activates that enzyme. Uh, it gets or is reduced by that enzyme and then starts just forming superoxide radicals and causing a bunch of rampant DNA damage. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of goes hog wild in these cells, I think, basically. <laughs> so it, does this P4 um, turn metronidazole into like a toxin almost? Yeah, I, I guess I kind of thought of it. It's like turning like almost like a buzzsaw on and like it, it turns on this like superoxide anion buzzsaw that just damages DNA. Yeah, I don't causes know. a whole uh, metronidazole lot of damage. <laughs> <laughs> 
But but you uh, need P4 for this to happen. It's P4 um, that's reducing metronidazole. Correct. This will not so, happen in cells that don't have that. Okay. So right, so exactly. I don't have so, P4, for example? Yes. Exactly. Yes, I don't have it. Okay. All right. So Yes, exactly. I mean, okay. I, I'm assuming. <laughs> I, okay. I, 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 I am an aerobic I don't just think you're clear. a parasite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I, I sure as hell hope not to. <laughs> no, but no, but Tony makes a really good point, right? Like, so the beauty of metronidazole is that it requires activation to do its damage. And so activation will only occur in cells of anaerobic organisms that have this P4 enzyme, but it won't happen in our cells because we're aerobic. Right. So it shouldn't create these, these um, radicals within our cells. Like just, I mean, we're saying it a number of different times, but I just want to be clear. Okay. That's, yes. that, it's pretty darn cool because it is, it is truly targeting um, anaerobes. Like that's to get, to, you know, Hannah's question is like, why anaerobes? Like th- that's such an elegant explanation. It's very targeted chemotherapy-ish. Yeah. So, um, so I'm struck a little bit by the fact that metronidazole treats bacteria and parasites. And was this something that was discovered like randomly? Was this something that people were like, oh, P4, let's throw it at anything that's anaerobic. Like, how did that come to be? Well, let me ask, answer your question with a question. Is is metronidazole an antibiotic that also works against parasites or is it an antiparasitic that also works against bacteria? I'll let Hannah try this one. <laughs> yeah, nothing nothing is better for uh the intern brain than philosophical questions. <laughs> right. About well, medicine. like in your <laughs> mind, circular. in your mind, in your mind or Tony, like Oh, this... I definitely think about this as an anti-anaerobic bacteria that like also works for parasites. Yeah, I mean I, I think so. Like if someone said to me, I was walking down the street and someone just stopped me and said, "Tony, what is metronidazole?" I'd say, "It's an antibiotic." But that you know, I wouldn't be like it's a it's. I wouldn't say it's an antiparasitic. I'd say it's an antibiotic. Be like that's it's an odd question to ask in the middle of the street. Yeah, hopefully that does not happen. <laughs> that's exactly what I would have said. And before I started, you know, reading about this, and I was really shocked to learn that historically, at least, it's actually an antiparasitic agent that only later, like decades later after its discovery, was used as an antibiotic. So originally it was developed in the 1950s to treat trichomonas, and then which is a parasite. Mm. And then it was used in the 1960s to treat other parasitic infections like giardia and amoebiasis. But then only in the 1970s was it found that, hey, this actually works against Bacteroides fragilis. And then it took off as with its use as an antibiotic to treat anaerobic bacterial infections. But it was decades into the use of the drug before it was used to treat bacterial infections. And this, I don't know about you guys, this this really blew my mind. I just, like you said, if you stopped me in the street and said, what class of drug is this? I'd say antibiotic. But yeah. it's really an antiparasite originally in terms of how it was used. That's interesting. And did they know that about this whole anaerobic spectrum of activity or was this kind of they were just throwing at things and seeing what stuck. Do, do you know? I think it was more the latter, um, yeah. but it was being... So I think at the time, there really was an effective treatment for, for trichomonas. And so right. they were there was a search to try to find an, um, mm. an adequate treatment for it, and they came across this compound. That's so cool. 
Yeah, I mean, it just like it reminds me of all of these other drugs that, like, some of the which we've talked about on the podcast, that started out as one thing and then have had these long histories. So, like, digoxin, for example, as we talked about extensively, but also like the history of lithium and AZT was originally a chemotherapy. I started kind of looking into this when when we talked about it. And like some first generation antipsychotics like chlorpromazine actually have some antimicrobial activity. And the real thing it reminded me of is um, SGLT2 inhibitors. Like I wonder if someday we're going to be like, can you imagine SGLT2 inhibitors were originally developed as anti-diabetic drugs? Yeah, no kidding. That's a great example. Uh, (laughs) So something I think about is like kind of a default thing to think about when I'm putting a patient on metronidazole is this concept of the disulfiram-like reaction. So one, what is kind of some of the evidence around the disulfiram-like reaction with metronidazole? And then two, does it have anything to do with this whole P4 pyruvate aspect? So, you know, I think it bears mentioning that the actual existence of this type of reaction, it's sort of controversial. The evidence for it is more at the case report level, but at the same time, this potential reaction is included as a precaution in the drug insert and... I think for the purposes of our discussion, it's okay to like to discuss it as if it's it is a real potential thing that can happen when alcohol and metronidazole are mixed. Um, but so that being said, you know there are reports that when metronidazole was mixed with alcohol, it led to a disulfiram-like reaction with flushing and nausea and vomiting and headaches. So the actual disulfiram alcohol reaction is caused by an inhibition of hepatic aldehyde dehydrogenase and the buildup of acetaldehyde after the ingestion of alcohol, which is the source of the symptoms of this reaction. I know, Tony, you've covered this in some in one of your tutorials before. So metronidazole doesn't have the same effect on alcohol dehydrogenase. But if we go back to the metabolism of acetyl-CoA, bacteria generate acetaldehyde and then ethanol, which is that reaction is a form of fermentation, essentially. And it turns out that aerobic bacteria can run that fermentation reaction in reverse. So they can generate acetaldehyde from ethanol. And the theory for this disulfiram-like reaction is that if you consume alcohol after taking metronidazole, metronidazole will have selectively killed the anaerobic bacteria in your gut. The aerobic bacteria will be free to metabolize all of that ingested alcohol and then generate lots of acetaldehyde leading to the symptoms of the disulfiram-like reaction. And it turns out this is exactly what happened in an experiment in rats where the group (laughs) took a combination of ethanol and metronidazole and saw what happened. And there was a spike in acetaldehyde levels in the colons of these rats. They're uh, porous, flushed. That's clearly how it works in humans. But 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 that's exactly the thing is like, okay, fine. So we have more acetaldehyde in the colon, but is that actually being absorbed into the bloodstream and causing any problems? And uh, I I mean, the reality is that when I um, prescribe this medication, I I do mention this possibility. I say avoid alcohol uh, while you're taking this drug. Um, but you know, I guess it's not as though the metronidazole is again going into our cells and causing acetaldehyde buildup. It's causing aerobic bacteria in the guts to maybe make it in the guts, and then that has to get into the bloodstream. Yeah, it's kind of hard to know if, like, with this anaerobic bacterial effect, if it has a, makes a C difference. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> so. Um, Avi, was there anything else that you learned 
uh, about metronidazole um, and all this fancy stuff that you haven't yet uh, told us? I, I mean, so, I'm sure there is, but <laughs> anything you want, you do want to tell us, though. So this drug, which was already like much cooler than I had thought it was when I started learning about this, got even cooler when I like reached the end of the rabbit hole. Which for me was finding out that metronidazole was actually used as a radio sensitizer for uh, radiotherapy in cancer. And had either of you ever ever heard of that? I definitely I had not. I had no no idea that it had been used this way. Nope. No. no definitely way. not. So there were experiments done in the 1970s, like like lab based experiments that showed that treating hypoxic or anoxic cells with human cells with metronidazole made them more sensitive to radiation, which is um, initially kind of surprising because we've talked all about how it's not going to undergo redox reactions in, in, in aerobic cells. So the mechanism of this isn't entirely clear, but it may be that there are metabolic changes in anoxic cells that allows metronidazole to, to actually undergo a redox reaction and get activated. And there actually was a small randomized control trial in the New England Journal in 1976 that studied the effects of adding metronidazole to a radiotherapy regimen for glioblastoma. And they found a longer survival in the metronidazole group. And they theorized that the metronidazole had made the radiotherapy more effective at Hmm. killing anoxic tumor cells. And in the 1970s and 1980s, metronidazole was like clinically in use, like um, standard of care, I think, for as a radio sensitizer for that period of time. Um, and then later there were like some studies that showed some mixed results and it seems like it fell out of favor. And so, and I'm not aware of it being used that way now, but I, I was just really intrigued to learn that this drug that has, you know, all this, this really unique selective set of, you know, actions had this totally different clinical use for at least for a period of time yeah it's it goes to show like before we had actually good you know relatively good therapies you you, you people were willing justifiably to kind of try anything right and Mm -hmm. and apparently have positive results yeah i mean it's also just like so elegant that this one essentially it's the same metabolic targeted sort of reaction um has so many different applications. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, this was effectively still like anaerobic therapy, right? Just anaerobic human cells, but yeah. All right. So I feel like I learned a lot, um, about a drug that I never really thought quite as much about before. Avi, can you give us your take home points? Yeah. And I I agree. Metronide is always kind of hiding in plain sight for me. (laughs) Like, whoa, you're a really cool (laughs) drugs. So from a historical perspective, it's metronidazole is actually an antiparasitic medication that we use as an antibiotic. And its selectivity for anaerobes comes from its needing to be activated by the pyruvate ferredoxine oxidoreductase, or P4 enzyme, which is unique to anaerobes. And after activation, it acquires electrons and damages DNA. And the purported disulfiram-like reaction when metronidazole is mixed with alcohol, it may result from selective killing of anaerobic gut bacteria, leading to the conversion of ethanol to acetaldehyde by colonic aerobic bacteria and the subsequent symptoms of nausea, vomiting, and flushing and all that. So, And it's a radio sensitizer. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you again for joining us. And if you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point that you think we should feature on the show, tag us on Twitter. I'm at Hannah R. Abrams. I'm at Avraham Cooper, MD. And I'm uh, at Tony underscore Brew. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at CuriousClinPod. You can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and to have the show notes for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. We're excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, please visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curious clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye. Thanks for joining us.